Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack, and my co-host, Stephen Tool. Who, this time, Stephen, you have come armed with computerised I have. notes. Yeah, you have yeah. upped the stakes Living immensely. fear, Mark. Um, I am looking forward to your detailed recital of facts all the way through this episode. And I'm going to fact check to you all the way through, I think, as well. Can we just end the episode here then? <laughs> nope, nope, got to go on. Okay. This so is our last podcast, I think, isn't it, before the actual polling day. Obviously, for those postal voters, polling day has mm. already happened. But There will be, and I've got to get this number right, because you're going to fact check me, <laughs> it will be millions of votes, yes. Okay. Think about the numbers. It will be millions of votes have you already be, actually be less been specific? cast. <laughs> millions of votes have already actually been cast by people all around the country. Yeah. I can't fact check that, because um, that's uh, one of those... Because it's true, statistics. and fact-checking is very yeah. boring. I mean, actually, just a slight digression on this. Uh, we, we may come back to, we may come back to we Joe Swinson's interview with Andrew Neil. but one of the things I thought was quite interesting was how little attention the BBC fact-checking of the interview got. Mm-hmm. And the reason it got so little attention was essentially because the fact-check said, yeah, pretty much everything was true and accurate. Yeah. Um, and, and there's obviously a wider point that highlights, which, and this is part of maybe the deliberate political style of people like Boris Johnson and Donald Trump, um, egged on by people like uh, Dominic Cummings and so on, is that had she said something that was untrue and had generated a controversy, that would have generated much more attention. Now, that attention isn't necessarily positive, but you can see how you look at that sort of BBC fact check and how all the rest of us sort of shrugged our shoulders and thought this isn't a very interesting story does rather entice the less scrupulous politicians to say, you know what, actually this truth is not that such a good way of getting, getting loads of media coverage. Yeah. So uh, you have the advantage on me uh, on this, as in so much else, in that you've actually watched the Andrew Neil interview with Joe Swinson. Indeed. I've been living life like a normal person this week and therefore have not had time to uh, uh, catch up with political programmes, etc. Um, but what I did see from uh, Twitter, from newspaper coverage, etc., was that uh, overall... She appeared to probably, of all the leaders who've been interviewed by Andrew Neil so far and had been subjected to that grilling uh, by someone who, whatever his politics, is uh, probably the toughest uh, and uh, most informed interrogator. Can I uh, throw in another digression at this point? Um, I mean, you're absolutely right. Andrew Neil deserves praise and credit for being a very good interviewer. But doesn't it say something a bit damning about the rest of the media that he's praised for being a really good interviewer because he's clearly knowledgeable and well prepared? Yeah. It is, you know, it's not that he's a brilliant interviewer because he's remarkably nimble on his feet or has an amazing way with words. He's he's a brilliant interviewer because he's really good at something anyone who wants to put in Mm. a bit of hard work and a bit of competency should at least be decent at. Yeah. And I think it does really, and I've, I've no doubt there would be many journalists who do interviews who would have lots of good excuses about how overworked they are and how little time they have to prepare and all of that. So this may be more a comment about uh, editors and media owners and boards of directors rather than the individual interviewer. But it is really striking that basically the British political class is in awe of somebody who does their homework properly beforehand. I think that, I think that's right. I, I would, uh, it's worth Sticking up for production teams here as well, because a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of um, uh, the briefing notes, etc., will be prepared behind the scenes. But Andrew Neil deserves mm, credit absolutely. for actually having read them. Yeah. Uh, and I guess the the one caveat I would say to what indeed you, I, I, agree, I wonder I if there's with, a story that we don't hear about a brilliant researcher yeah, who, yeah. who works for Andrew. And Neil, I agree but. with what you say. Um, that said, um, we've also seen journalists come unstuck because it is a difficult skill um, so I'm thinking for example of Fiona Bruce mm. on Question Time who got into trouble with the Labour Party um, a few months ago on I think her third outing in the show uh, as host and she corrected at uh, the time saying Labour Party was behind in most polls mm. and actually in most polls at the time Labour was pretty much level pegging this shows you how long ago it was uh, <laughs> yeah. and, um, this is a story from so 1947 <laughs> I guess it's it's, I, I mean, you've occasionally um, hosted things mm. and chaired things, and it can be quite difficult in the moment when you're trying to move conversation on, think of your next question, and to also then have the presence of mind to be confident enough in the facts that you mm. think you've memorised beforehand to be able to challenge someone with the authority and say, no, you're wrong, uh, especially in a kind of yeah, live, as-live interview. To give you an example of something where I think 
that defence doesn't really apply. I think it was Paul Brand on ITV who asked Boris Johnson the question, can you look me in the eye and say you've never lied? Mm. And yeah, yeah. Boris Johnson yeah. said, no, I've never lied. Where was the follow-up? Yeah. You know, where was, if you're going to ask that question... Yeah. Especially you know, if, uh, if, 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 if Boris if it, Johnson has been sacked from two exactly, jobs for lying. Sort of thing, <laughs> if you're asking that question, what, what is the world in which you think it is sensible to ask that question and you don't have a follow-up about one of the occasions when he's been sacked for lying. Yeah. That, I just... And that certainly Andrew Neil wouldn't, you know, yeah. wouldn't, wouldn't let... Anyway, to undigress, let's undigress for a moment and reconstruct uh, where we were Surely at. Surely if we digress Which enough, the digression <laughs> becomes the mainstream. Becomes the reality. Uh, uh, so I was saying I hadn't seen Jo Swinson mm. being interviewed, but the coverage I'd seen yeah. suggested she put in... Uh, as good a performance, probably better performance than many of the other mm. leaders. She had, I guess, the advantage that she'd seen them go first, so she yeah. knew that it was going to be an aggressive yeah. interview. I mean, no well, shock there from Andrew yeah. Neil, but <laughs> nonetheless. Um, she had seen Jeremy Corbyn slated for uh, not giving an apology, oddly yeah. not giving an apology, given he has previously issued apologies for the uh, anti-Semitism that's been found in the Labour Party, but he refused to when interviewed by Andrew Neil and got into pro trouble. Joe Swinson mm. was quick to issue some apologies around mm. uh, some of the yeah. coalition policies, notably the bedroom tax, for example, uh, and say, look, we, we fought lots of battles and we won some, but we didn't win enough. And that, uh, that answered through praise. And so most people seemed from the perhaps the bubble I'm in, but at least from what I saw, to think that she'd acquitted herself mm. well. Was that your impression yeah. of someone who actually did watch the interview? Now, obviously, my usual caveat that I apply to other people should apply to myself as well, which is that if you're interested enough in politics to listen to a political podcast, let alone to record a political <laughs> podcast, you are way out from the mainstream of ordinary people out there. So Let's face it, everyone records a political podcast <laughs> yeah. these days. Um, so in that sense, my view is you, you always have to temper thinking, well, is what I think really what people out there actually think. Um, but it was notable that there was a fair number of journalists who are sometimes friendly towards the Lib Dems, sometimes hostile. Mm -hmm. People like Isabel Hardman, who sometimes praises the party, sometimes criticises it. People like her were generally in the praising yeah. uh, Jay Swinson's performance. And that, I think, is, is a genuine sort of bit of evidence um, to point towards. The other thing that struck me about this interview that she gave was it illustrates the virtue of just giving a very immediate direct answer to a difficult question that you know you're going to get mm -hmm. and so in this case the way she went straight into I'm sorry we got things wrong in coalition worked very well there is a risk of that which perhaps was illustrated in one of the previous TV interviews she gave where she was asked about would she press the nuclear button and I suspect what she had in the back of her mind was the huge contortions that people like Jeremy Corbyn have got into mm -hmm. about trying to not answer questions, and therefore was thinking, I must give a straight, direct answer, I must give a straight, direct answer, and in a way almost went in too directly to yeah. simply say yes, rather than that being the sort of question where a little bit of, of empathy wrapped around it yeah. uh, would have probably been I mean, to made be fair, for a better answer. I, I, mean, I did see that one, actually. Uh, to be fair to her, I suppose the format of the question was meant to be that it was a kind of almost a yes-no mm. round, but... Uh, it's one of those where if you are a leading politician, you probably, as you say, you kind of, for an answer like that of, are you prepared to send millions of people to their death? You probably need to put some kind of caveats around that to uh, to sound uh, normal enough. So understand why yeah. she went for the direct yes, yeah. but... Um, and also, you know, to reflect what I presume is her position, uh, you know, which is that as a, as a multilateralist, yeah. uh, you know, that part of what goes with that is genuinely believing that is the best way to keep the yeah. world safe. Um, but that also therefore goes with a necessary um, collective ambiguity over exactly what everyone would do. You know, we have no yeah. idea what the different British Prime Ministers have said in their letters. Um, for those listeners who don't know what happens, one of the first things that happens when, you, when somebody becomes Prime Minister uh, is they have to write a sealed letter to be opened by the commander of the uh, British nuclear deterrent, the submarine with nuclear deterrent on, in the event of something happening and uh, you know the government being wiped out and, and not being able to communicate and give orders to the submarine, so pre-prepared orders. Mm -hmm. um, interesting, it's one of the few areas where secrecy genuinely still prevails, that those letters, as far as I know, have never leaked. I don't think any former Prime Minister has ever revealed what they've said, written in his or her letter. Mm -hmm. um, and we have no idea. I mean, who knows? Maybe Mrs Thatcher didn't say yes, go ahead and retaliate. Yeah, maybe, maybe at heart there was a little bit of dovishness in her. Um, I also wonder in, the, in terms of the US 
if you think about the you know, US political leaders, it's often forgotten that one of the most aggressively militaristic Ronald Reagan also had a really genuine belief in wanting to achieve nuclear disarmament. Yeah. It's very there's a very interesting combination of views that he that he had. The latter understandably tends to get rather overlooked, but played a key role in the and, the reason so, I, and, and so you wonder if even somebody like Reagan, would Reagan actually have said... So we've got no idea. The reason I raised my eyes... That's not quite uh, a yes-no answer I, in an interview I, during a, yeah, I, an election <laughs> rather than a history seminar, is it? Um, yeah, uh, I don't think that would I have some other great anecdotes about Andrew the 17th Neil. century we can work in as well. <laughs> if, you know. I don't think your answer would, would pass the Andrew Neil test. Um, I, I, I raised my eyebrow slightly sceptically at your suggestion that... It was my, his Margaret left Thatcher. eyebrow, a little bit of extra commentary there for That's, the audio listeners. Yeah, the audio description there, thank you. Uh, the... Uh, I, I raised my eyebrow um, slightly sceptically. Eyebrow that, that rests above Margaret actually a very Thatcher. fetching light pink shirt. It's a long time since we've described Thanks. your shirts on Thanks this podcast. God. You're taking digression to an extreme now. Um, because uh, I, I don't think Margaret Thatcher was that dovish. And it's interesting mm. when you read, as I now have, um, the two biographies, the first two biographies by Charles Moore of Margaret Thatcher. Really, really good. Well worth reading. Uh, the, one of the um, issues that mm. she and Ronald Reagan fell out over was his, his dovishness that, yeah, that's, on that's, nuclear weapons. She point. didn't actually trust him negotiating with the Russians mm. because, um, as with the Reykjavik mm. summit, she feared that he would go too far and would potentially negotiate away mm. the deterrent that mm. NATO, the US, and therefore the UK relied on at the time. So it's interesting that it's not the kind of stereotypical... Mm picture that people have of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan as these arch neocon yeah. yeah. uh, forebears. Uh, to to reframe my point slightly in the event of your deployment, yeah. the fact-checking there. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, yeah, who knows? We, we have no idea what the different Prime Ministers have written in those letters, but given how many Prime Ministers there have now been, it seems to me likely that at least one of them has gone for the don't blow up the rest of the world in retaliation. Yeah. Letter. Yeah. Just given the number of them there are, however, you know, even if you put the odds fairly low for none of them to have done that. And yet, in terms of their public personas, none of them have really been in that yeah. in that mould. And that's why I think, you know, in a way, the would you push the button question is it's one of those questions that I think has some value in terms of journalists asking it. Mm -hmm. uh, because as both Joe Swinson and Jeremy Corbyn have illustrated, there are ways of answering it that maybe helps reveal something yeah. about them. And, but it is also one of those questions that I think falls a bit into that category that I talked about before of like asking a politician, are you going to do well in this election? You sort of think, well, yeah. you're just, are you really going to get an answer that's that interesting to that? Mind you, at least this one is about an issue. Yeah. So and, and, it, and it was in a quick fire round yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, an unfortunate, unfortunate choice of phrase, given the, um, <laughs> yes, the subject matter. Um, anyway, that which reminds me, can I digress again? <laughs> of one of my favourite moments many, many years ago when I was on the Liberal Democrat Federal Conference Committee and there was a very it, poorly written motion about Northern Ireland. It was just a bit, the text was a bit too dense. The, the intention behind it was fine. And so the committee was discussing whether to reject the motion or instead to ask the proposers to work with the proposers to rewrite it. <laughs> and one of my colleagues, who is a, a distinguished member of the party in the House of Lords, so I won't name them to drop them in it, uh, helpfully said, well, could we just ask them to rewrite this motion into a nice, clear series of bullet points? Yeah. Um, we have digressed a long way, and in fact, I think we're not even on to item one on, on our no, agenda. No, we're, we're at item so, zero. Item zero. Let's get on to item one, shall we? And the uh, from first thing, nuclear targeting um, to marginal seat targeting. All right, we're going to go Is that for a good that segue? one. segue? Okay, that's item two. Um, uh, so item one, <laughs> item one. Now I'm going to draw us back to our pre-agreed agenda. Was around uh, your contention that. Actually, the polling evidence mm. bears out that the Lib Dem policy of revoke Article 50, far from the media consensus that it's a policy which is backfiring on the Liberal Democrats, actually is a popular one with voters. So, Mark, explain your contention. Evidence. Okay, evidence if you Evidence. Will. So, I, I will would, fact check you. Uh, indeed, you can. YouGov. So, YouGov poll uh, carried out in late November. Um, and the late November bit is obviously crucial because I have before talked about and will include in the show notes links to polling carried out earlier in the year that showed the revoke policy was very popular with Remainers, very unpopular with Leavers. Therefore, the net figures can sometimes look rather mediocre mm -hmm. or even worse. 
but given the Liberal Democrat pitch is overwhelmingly to Remainers, the key thing is, sure. do Remainers like it yep. or not? Um, and so there's, there was good evidence about its popularity with Remainers earlier in the year. Of course, we also earlier this year had over 6 million people sign a petition to Parliament about it. The reasonable response to all of that is, yeah, but that was then, this is now. Mm -hmm. So YouGov data, though, from late November... Um, is is very relevant to that. Twenty fourth to twenty sixth of November. Exactly. You see, precise. he does have his computer in front yeah. of him, listeners, um, and that for, asked people whether they thought it would be a good or bad outcome if a range of different possible scenarios played out. And one was if Article Fifty was revoked and Britain remained in the EU. Sixty six percent of Remainers thought it would be either a good or a fairly good outcome. Mm -hmm. Only fourteen percent thought it would be a bad or fairly bad. Sorry, fairly bad or very bad outcome. The others fall either into the indifferent or don't know categories. So I think that's quite significant. Only 14% of Remainers said actually having a general election that then is followed by Article 50 being revoked would be a bad or a very bad outcome. That's, that's not a figure that points to this policy being a massive political problem in any way. So it's very striking that, the, in that sense, conventional political wisdom is way out of kilter with evidence. Um, I think there's a couple of possible explanations. <clears throat> one, obviously, we should say, well, this is one poll, although it is in line with that earlier data. Um, and if you look at the other results in the poll, where they can be cross-referenced against other data and evidence that we have, it doesn't look like a rogue poll. So that mm -hmm. bit looks fairly solid. The other, though, I think is, and this touches on a broader issue about what really drives political decision making, is what makes people hold a view and the reason and the way in which they express holding that view are often not the same. Yeah. So to give you a really simple, clear example um, from 2010, if you look at what happened after the 2010 election, Liberal Democrat support collapsed and then there were tuition fees, and then there was NHS reform, and then there were welfare cuts. So the collapse in Lib Dem support happened before the sorts of things that people now, quite sincerely, I'm sure, and certainly very vocally, claim are the reasons why they maybe used to vote Lib Dem but don't anymore. Yeah. And so in that sense, it's clearly not true that something that happened after you changed your mind was the cause of you changing your mind, mm -hmm. unless... You know, Doctor Who is liberal, ex-liberal Democrat. Perhaps we can give him or her a buy on that. Um, so I think what is most likely to be the case when all, everything is done and dusted, and there's a lot more evidence to look at as well, is not that it's the Article 50 policy that's the problem. It's that rather the party has, for the sorts of reasons we talked about in the last episode, had this sort of two-party squeeze on it, etc. Yeah. And therefore, having been squeezed, or commentators having seen the Lib Dem vote deflate gently during this campaign, then looking for a reason, and then applying to that a causal explanation that actually happens to be the wrong one in this case. Yeah. Um, and this is you know, not just a theoretical debating point, because in terms of what lessons the party learns for the future, and how we do even better, at the general election after this one, which after all might be next year. Hooray. Yeah. Um, we can hope, eh? <laughs> uh, so, you know, when we're preparing for the 2020 general election, that question of was that policy counterproductive? Was it a mistake? Was it yeah. other things that were a problem? Will be really important to get right because otherwise we'll just go in uh, preparing yeah. for the next round of elections uh, with the wrong lessons and therefore hobbling ourselves. So whilst Mark has been making his contention, listeners, I have uh, opened up the YouGov polling tabs and uh, I can confirm that uh, he is right. And if you look at so what I was particularly interested in looking this at... This is really going to convince the, um, sceptics, one host fact-checking the <laughs> other, but we will include the links to the poll uh, in the show notes. Um, so what uh, I was particularly interested in checking out was the Conservative Remainer mm. um, share. And so of those uh, people who voted... Conservative uh, in 2017 and were Remain voters in 2016. Uh, and remember, of mm. course, the YouGov has the advantage that it has the data. Um, so it's. Uh, it knows what people said at the it, time. Yeah. yeah. So the, 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 the occasional difficulty that pollsters can get into a false recall where people remember having voted for a party that they didn't actually vote for, that isn't an issue for YouGov. So uh, Conservative um, Remainers. Um, Sixty-four percent say that uh, they think it would be a good or acceptable outcome if uh, Article 50 were revoked and uh, the United Kingdom remained in the European Union. 
Um, so uh, versus twenty five percent saying it would be a and, a and it's a outcome. fairly similar figure for Labour remainers as well, if I remember rightly. Uh, it's yeah, it, well, it's it's similar in mm. terms of um, the skew, but it's even more so. So eighty percent of Labour remainers think that revoking Article Fifty would be a good outcome or acceptable outcome, and only twelve percent saying it would be a bad yeah. uh, or unacceptable yeah. outcome. So, I, um, but to your points, I guess um, I, mean, I think the squeeze is a big part mm. of it. I think there is potentially an issue that is uh, just one of those inevitabilities of a general election, um, which is one of the reasons why lots of people were pushing for a second referendum as uh, settling Brexit on the basis of it being one of those issues that does divide within parties, not just between parties. I think the question arises as to whether or not with Conservatives in particular, um, they're more anti Labour stroke anti-Corbyn than they are anti-Brexit. And so whilst theoretically they quite like the idea of revoking Article 50, it's not enough to outweigh their concerns that a vote for the Liberal Democrats will let in Jeremy Corbyn into Downing Street, and therefore that factor is weighing more heavily in their mind than the potential for the Liberal Democrats to um, stop Brexit. because. That prospect seems quite remote on the basis that the Liberal Democrats would only implement it if they were a majority government, and I don't think any of us realistically do expect that to happen. And so uh, their, their Once main... Once again, you are fulfilling the variable loyalty element of the Well, to be fair, you'd have to then make that accusation against Ed Davey, who I think is also, and indeed possibly even Joe Swinton, who has also tacitly accepted yes. that the Liberal Democrats yes. will not form a government at this election. It's true, she was less devoted to the prospect of a Liberal Democrat majority victory in her Andrew Neal interview so, than... Yeah. So um, the Pravda-style loyalty that you're asking me to indulge in, I'm afraid I'm going to uh, resist. Um, so I think it, that is the problem of traditional kind of two-party mm. squeeze, which the Liberal Democrats have always been vulnerable to, especially in an election which may be close, may not be, but no one yet knows. Uh, and so uh, Conservative Remainers are defaulting to being Conservative rather than Remainy, not least because of their fear of the Labour Party somehow mm. managing though it seems incredibly unlikely from the polling, but nonetheless, we thought that last time too, the Labour Party somehow managing to get into Downing Street one way or another. Mm. Yes, and a similar argument actually can apply for people on the other side of the political spectrum. That between them, the sort of fear of Johnson and the fear of Corbyn may well turn out to be so great that that, to a significant yep. degree, trumps yep, we will see. people's views we will see. on Brexit. And what it does... I mean, what it does illustrate, I think, is in part why Paddy Ashdown ended up taking the sort of political strate uh, strategy choices for the party that he did in the mid-1990s. And I think particularly after his e experience in the 1992 election, where the Liberal Democrats were similarly squeezed in a sort of politically uncertain time, was yeah, the path that he then charted for the party was to say, well, actually, the party's best route for success is for there to be a really popular leader of the opposition, something mm -hmm. that's obviously outside the Lib Dem control, uh, but then for the Liberal Democrats to be closely aligned with that yeah. party and therefore you get a a political benefit of, as it were, two against one ganging up on another party, and therefore that makes it easier mm -hmm. to win out over that party, but you also manage to sidestep that fear of X getting into Downing Street because it's actually not fear of X, it's hope that X will sure. get into, sure. into Downing Street. And in, to an extent... Um, that was in a slightly different way part of where Nick Clegg ended up in the run-up yeah. to 2010 of again sort of wanting to um, of you know benefiting from a sense of people not being fearful of Cameron now that worked mm. in a way less well for him in 2010 than it worked for Paddy Ashdown in 1997 and, and arguably perhaps less well for the party overall and indeed um, <laughs> because yeah, David Cameron was not nearly as popular as Tony Blair. Yeah, you know, and therefore in the 2010 election, and uh, possibly the, the know, Cameron led government down. Whilst, um, yeah, in the Cameron led government and the Blair led government perhaps differed in some of their policies in, in one or two respects. Uh, as well. is, is your variable loyalty about I, to turn into into I, Tony Blair I, love fanboy uh, love once again yeah, at this point? Uh, it's the Liberal Blair right here <clears> speaking. Um, but actually, the the thing I was going to say um, more related to Article 50. Um, was this I, is bet, how I wonder if Tony Blair is going to vote Lib Dem this time. He may well do. He may well you know, do. He um, may well have finally won over a voter. Yeah. I, well, I mean, is John Major a voter in uh, in a um, in Huntingdon? 
Is that uh, That's a good question. I'm not actually sure where John May Because he's advocated lives. a tactical vote yeah, against a so Conservative depending, government. So, so depending on where he lives, he may be a Liberal Democrat yeah. voter as well. Who would have thought? But what I was going to say was on Article 50, uh, the way in which I've assuaged myself a bit mm. in terms of my forebodings about the election result uh, being a Conservative majority and potentially quite a big Conservative majority is that at the very least and this may feel like quite a straw in the wind to grab hold of, but hey, uh, I'm going to grab it, is that at the very least the Conservatives will have to own Brexit. Mm. And uh, I think there is there is an argument to be made, not um, one I like making, but I think there is an argument to be made that um, by honouring um, the 2016 referendum result, by having Brexit carried through by the leader of the Remain campaign, by having a Brexit that has been more or less endorsed by Nigel Farage, however um, reluctantly so, that there is no escape now from the logic of that position. And so if Brexit is a success, well, hey, you know, um, I guess lots of us will be maybe happy to be proven wrong is, is not actually accurate, but nonetheless we will have been proven wrong. Mm. But if Brexit isn't a success, there is nowhere now for the Brexiteers to hide in a way that Theresa May's deal was mm. in many ways preferable to Boris Johnson's, mm. or at least uh, less unpreferable. Uh, there would have always been that um, betrayal myth that would be likely to form uh, amongst Brexiters. Oh, it wasn't really Brexit. Uh, it was, you know, Theresa May's version. Mm. It was a, it was a compromise, etc. And I think what it will force Remainers to do, if, if the Conservatives win, and if Boris Johnson does take us out, etc., etc., is the only way back into the European Union then will be for Remainers to actually win an argument for the United Kingdom to be wholeheartedly embracing the EU, because we won't be able to get back in with opt-outs, we won't be able to get back in as this reluctant foot-dragging partner. We will have to go back in because there has been a full-throated campaign advocating pro-Europeanism and what that means. And there is a part of me that says, democratically, that's not such a bad thing after all. But it's quite a long-term outcome, I do accept. Can I clutch that straw away from you <laughs> uh, and throw it on the local incinerator? Um, because because I think the Lib Dems will stop Brexit at this election. Well, A, that, obviously, but B, um, and this is part of obviously the point that you know, Liberal Democrats and others need to get over in the last few days of the election, is that electing a Tory majority government doesn't mean then Brexit gets done. Boris Johnson doesn't have an oven-ready meal. Sure. What he has done is he has peeled and chopped the carrots. There is still a long way to go. And therefore, oh, yeah, yeah. because there will be, will be into a year's worth of negotiations. Oh, I agree, but that's, part, that's, that's, that's but part of think, owning Brexit. But the reason I clutch your straw and throw it onto the incinerator, into the incinerator, onto the incinerator wouldn't be very helpful if it landed on top of the chimney it would just then blow up harmlessly probably so into the incinerator is that he will then turn around and blame other people like he will blame brussels he'll blame the eu for not yeah yeah, yeah of course uh, i mean you know playing around the leave campaign will always blame someone yeah. else that is their default position but uh, i think in terms of the public argument it will be much harder to maintain that brexit going wrong if the Conservatives have a majority and if it's led by Boris Johnson, I think it's much harder for them to maintain that it's, uh, it's not yes, their problem. Yes, that's certainly true. Um, I, I mean, one thing we will hopefully never have to discover is actually whether the terms of Britain uh, rejoining the European Union after the successful Swinson landslide uh, <laughs> election, after the country revolts after the disaster mm -hmm. of Brexit and the near no-deal, hard-deal uh, fallout that we'll get at the end of next year when once again there will be a deal up for negotiation that may well not be negotiated um, is will actually the EU decide you know what having a country leave and then rejoin the EU is so good for the EU's long-term stability mm -hmm. and existence that they'll be willing to have some of those opt-outs apply Protect, yeah um, yeah and, and, and I think we certainly shouldn't shouldn't just assume that uh, all of those are therefore written out sure, uh, sure. automatically. But it certainly won't be as good a deal yeah. as the one that we've had. But anyway, um, that's agenda item one covered, I think. We move back the to... The way to make agenda item one, however completely redundant, yeah. is to ensure that the Tories don't win. Okay, this is... So I have variable loyalty, you have uniform loyalty. I think we've established that. <laughs> um, so back to... And actually that trick tees up nicely agenda item two, which was targeting 
um, which we almost um, skipped on to after our discussion of um, uh, polling and Which I bid for the most tasteless um, segue ever earlier. Indeed. So uh, this is in particular in response to some of the uh, tweets we've been getting to uh, at, at Bar Chart, Chart Podcast. Podcast. Shall we say that again in stereo? It, I think we did. At Bar Chart Podcast. There you go. Uh, is that uh, there was the question that arises, how does the party uh, decide nationally, I think this was, how does the party mm. decide at a national level which seats get targeted and in particular in the crucial last week, which we're now in, how to divert resources mm. from seats where, where realistically the party now knows enough that it's, it's not going to win to seats where actually uh, some or, extra... Or um, some extra resources could make the difference. Most certainly going to win, and therefore can also oh, divert resources yeah, from. Yeah. So safe seats or uh, um, quotes no hope <laughs> seats. Uh, how does it yeah. kind of allocate resources yeah. to try and maximise its the efficiency yeah. of the vote? So on the party members website, so behind a login for members, um, and again we'll include the link in the show notes. Although we won't include the password if you're not a member. <laughs> um, is a little tool where you can put in your postcode of where you, maybe where you live or your say your postcode of where you work if actually popping out after work to go and help campaign somewhere might be more practical for you anyway you can put in the postcode and see some seat or seats that you are directed towards and there are two factors that really go into deciding which seats to point you at one is as you've touched on rightly Stephen uh, which are the seats that look neither safe nor hopeless so mm -hmm. we're in between that um, and that is in part obviously a factor of previous election results or where Lib Dems have previously held, but obviously is also based on things like the party's polling and analysis of, of uh, sources of data through the election campaign, such as canvassing. Um, <clears throat> very striking how, say, in the 2017 election, you did get some very vocal Liberal Democrat members saying, well, this, this, this tool is clearly broken. It's not telling me to go to constituency X, where constituency X was a seat that we'd held pre-2015, yeah. but all the evidence the party had pointed towards us not having any chance at all of regaining it. And in fact, when I went through and looked, about, looked at, after the 2017 election, looked at various examples where people had said, this is clearly wrong, why, why am, I, am I not being sent to seat Y? When you then looked at the election results that actually t transpired in seat Y, it was very, very obvious mm -hmm. why people were not. So although these things are never perfect, it is actually true that they are, they are an awful lot better than uh, the guesswork that people without access to any of that data yeah. can do. And, and I say that because, you know, obviously if somebody sticks in a postcode and gets an apparently ludicrous result, it can always be worth, uh, you know, highlighting that in case there is a bug or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But it's worth just being really honest with yourself and think, well, if I have no data at all on how the canvassing or the constituency polling looks in a particular seat, do I really know what our odds are of winning it or not? And yeah. um, the other element, though, which then also I think uh, sometimes perhaps pro provides slightly surprising uh, seat choices, is of course the party also tries to allocate help in a reasonably proportionate manner. So if you live in a bit of the country, say, with a very large number of members, uh, it might be there are too many members in that sense living near one target seat. <laughs> and not mm -hmm. enough living near another target seat, and therefore some of them may well be asked to go to a target seat that you might look at and think, oh, that's a bit further away. I'm surprised I'm not being asked to go somewhere else because there's an effort sure. to even out, even out the help around the place. Um, all that said, of course, <clears throat> one of the things that automated systems like this can never quite fully reflect are things like where do your family live, who you might want to pop in to say hello to a relative. Sure. Uh, obviously the difference as well between where you li uh, live and where you work, um, or you know, are you a car driver or not, do you therefore particular train connections matter or not, mm -hmm. which train connections have engineering works and, and so on. So what I quite often do is try a series of three or four different postcodes sometimes just to think, well actually, you know, that bit of the country maybe is easier for me to get to that weekend, let's just pretend I lived lived an hour's travel nearer there and see where I then get pointed to. And in terms of uh, the party's uh, targeting and so on, it, obviously the aim is to win the seats, but um, behind that, I guess, as well, will be where can we finish second, a good second for next time mm. as well, because uh, this isn't a once-and-for-all election. It's uh, almost certainly going to be part of uh, a, a rebuilding for the Liberal Democrats. That's so dangerous democratic 
talk, Stephen, <laughs> suggesting that once we have one election, yeah, let people, people vote once, spoken. we should let people vote again. Yeah, I know. I like, like the cut of your democratic um, jib, you radical, so subversive you. I, I know, I, I, I'll, I'll live with that. Uh, Next, you'll be suggesting that you know maybe a referendum shouldn't be forever. Um, indeed. Uh, anyway, back to, I'm going to call you back to the agenda whether you like it or not. So the question is, mm. and one of the things that uh, we pointed to in the last mm. podcast from the MRP survey uh, that was looking at constituencies was that whilst the headline figure was undoubtedly disappointing for the Liberal Democrats in terms of what it was projecting, uh, um, only uh, an additional uh, one seat mm. on top of what the Liberal Dem Democrats have, that it did highlight that the party would be in first or second place in 134, I think I'm right in saying, seats. Uh, and that therefore gives a much better springboard for the election afterwards. So is part of the um, party's kind of equation for figuring out where to spend help also about, OK, where can we get from a third place to a credible second, even though we know it's very unlikely we'll win it this time? Um, yes, but that becomes much less of a issue the closer we get to polling day mm -hmm. so the closer we are to polling day the more hard-nosed it's sensible to be to think well okay if my efforts over next week could generate an extra 10 votes where are those 10 votes going to be most valuable yeah. they'll be most valuable in the seat that looks like it might be nine votes that we lose by yeah now obviously you can never quite precision target effort you know to that degree but the close and this actually applies across the full parliamentary cycle that the closer we get to polling day, the more sense it makes to focus in effort more and more tightly on yeah. the what we hope will be the close, the close. And the classic example election. in 2017, of course, was the neighbouring <coughs> constituencies of Richmond Park and Twickenham, mm. where Twickenham piled up a 9,000 plus majority of the Vince Cable, mm. and uh, we just missed out mm. um, by 50 odd votes, 47, um, 47 yeah. votes from um, defeating. Uh, Sarah only defeating Zach Goldsmith in Richmond Park. So it, that kind of highlights how, you know, even on the evening, perhaps sending 10 people across might have uh, made yeah, a difference. Yeah, and I think the um, that particular example generated quite a lot of controversy in the party afterwards. Not so much actually for the Twickenham versus Richmond Park issue, because um, there was sort of limited intelligence as to just how well the party sure, was actually sure. doing in Twickenham but more for the number of PPCs in non-target seats across London who were eagerly campaigning and getting colleagues out campaigning in those non-target seats yeah. on the day before yeah. polling day or even on polling day. Yeah. And I think you know there is a point, at which, there is definitely a, a large part of the cycle in which you have to say, you know, how do we build long-term success? And that does yeah. include doing the work to help build up activity elsewhere. But the more active you are, and therefore the more likely you are to be willing to travel and the closer you get to polling day, the more important going to the target seat matters. Yeah. Um, so what you know, a lot of um, the very best of the party's non-target seat parliamentary candidates will be doing, for example, over the weekend, the final weekend before polling day, is they will maybe be going to hustings, they will be dealing with some correspondence from voters, they may be popping around and dropping off leaflets with half a dozen deliverers who just deliver their own street, mm -hmm. and then they'll be going down to the local train station to meet up with a group of fellow uh, Lib Dem activists to go off canvassing in a target seat. Yeah. And you know, if you're smart about it, it's very possible to square that circle of how do you help build up your own area, and how do you also help make sure that Indeed. targeting is successful and therefore yeah. we win an MP somewhere else. So we talked about targets, mm. and let's name some seats. This is our last podcast before the uh, polling day. So. Uh, MRP projected us to win 12, um, most of which we hold already, but not all, with a couple of additions like um, Sheffield Hallam and uh, Richmond Park um, and St Albans. Um, which are the seats that people should look out for if the Lib Dems are having a stonkingly good night, and which are the ones that we would hope to gain even on perhaps not a stellar night? Um, I guess seats like St Albans, Richmond Park, Cheltenham probably fall into the if the Lib Dems aren't winning all of those Something's it's going gone to wrong. be it's going to be a pretty grim mm -hmm. I mean there might you know one of them just occasionally might, might be a, a very wayward result I remember actually in the 1997 election being at the election count in Harrogate where we were on our way to a storming victory and partly because this was a, basically a pre-internet era uh, despite the fact we were about to storm to brilliant victory in Harrogate and indeed around the country uh, most of the time we were all pretty down, half half happy and half downbeat 
because we had accurate information through that there was a recount in Torbay and we thought, oh my goodness, if even Torbay is a recount, <laughs> well, brilliantly, we've done stupendously here, but it must be disastrous everywhere else. As it turned out, it wasn't disastrous everywhere else. Torbay was the one outlier, which thankfully yeah. we, did just, uh, we did just win, though, nonetheless. Um, <laughs> but I think, the days. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, so those, those three, I think, and probably Fife North East as well, uh, okay, of course, yeah. Um, yeah. given we only missed it out by two votes last time. Those four you know, are a good sense mm -hmm. of if the Lib Dems aren't winning all of those. This is a very, very grim night. Um, Escher and Walton, Dominic Rabsey is obviously yep. the, the big high profile the scalp. The Portillo. Uh, uh, are very much pouring a lot of effort into. It's possible that we could win Escher and Walton and not do brilliantly everywhere else, yeah. given how much it has become one of the really totemic high profile contests, both in terms of levels of Lib Dem effort, but also potential levels of tactical voting mm -hmm. and so on. Yeah. Um, so the other sorts of seats, I think, to sort of look out for would be things like some of the high profile. Uh, joiners to the Liberal Democrats, mm -hmm. particularly Chuck Ramuna uh, and Luciana Berger. Um, again, I think the particular combination of Luciana Berger and the uh, large Jewish community and the seat that she's standing for means it may be an yeah. outlier, as it yeah. were, that you can imagine situations in which she gets elected, even if it's a, a moderately bleak night for the Lib Dems elsewhere. But those would be two um, obvious seats to look out for. Um, I think if you sort of cast the net a bit more widely uh, across the country, um, Jane Dodds in Bracken and Radnorshire. She mm -hmm. obviously has not had very long as an MP to establish that personal vote and that constituency profile, given she only yeah, got yeah. elected uh, in the by-election earlier this year. And of course, that was quite a close result. That yeah. by-election and this time there's with no, a large Brexit party. Exactly, vote. and uh, so uh, her prospect in Wales, I think, will be quite a good indicator um, of how we are doing as well. Um, I'm sure there are a few other seats I could throw in, but as I've mentioned quite a lot, yeah. shall I pause and hand over to you? Yeah, uh, well, I think we should probably wrap up anyway. So, Oh, um, oh come on, name, name, name a seat to watch out for, Stephen. So, well, I mean, Isha and Walton is the, is the obvious one. Yeah. I guess uh, on top of that, it'll be interesting to uh, Wimbledon, mm. um, I think is an interesting seat, again, southwest London. Mm. I think generally the home counties. And that yeah, kind and, of and it's maybe worth emphasising that we're not, in that sense, being London-centric in the way yeah. that people in politics usually are, but rather in a different sense, which is that the Liberal Democrat prospects look best in that sort of basically London and the home counties yeah. sort of swathe of the country, um, rather than, for example, in some previous elections where you would have expected the Celtic fringe to feature yeah. very heavily in the sort of answers yeah. that we just gave. The Celtic fringe rather than the Celtic fringe. Oh, the fringe. Celtic fringe, sorry, um, the Celtic fringe. Um, <laughs> otherwise, the Rangers uh, fans will be honest, yes. just wondering where their fringe is. I, was, I well. noticed somebody tweeting uh, about my pronunciation of the word Brexit, so I'm now going to be completely paranoid. I'm going to pick you up on your pronunciation Brexit of the word pronunciation. The Celtic fringe. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, anyway, those are some seats to watch out for. Now, we're going to close, um, and I did give Mark some forewarning of this, um, with uh, just kind of uh, our own quickfire round, though this is Mark, so it won't be that quickfire, I'm guessing. Are you not answering the questions? I, uh, well, I'll see. I'll see what you say. I may, uh, I'm not going to just re repeat what you say. So, the questions are, what's, uh, what have we uh, most enjoyed about the election campaign? Recording um, podcasts with you. And uh, is that your quickfire answer there? Okay. It is. Uh, it's nice to know I'm a highlight in the, in the national election. And uh, what has most irritated you? Recording podcasts with you. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Um, are those your serious answers? Quickfire round. I've okay. stuck to the rules. Okay, you're going to ask me. What's been most enjoyable for thank you, thank you for asking. I'm, I'm really glad you asked that question, Mark. Uh, so, uh, most enjoyable, literally nothing about this election nothing campaign. At all. I don't think I've enjoyed a single, which is weird because uh, the first general election campaign I properly remember um, <coughs> is 1992. Mm. I have vague memories of 87, but 92 is the first one I kind of properly remember following uh, as, a, as a keen teenage uh, political nerd and getting incredibly excited about it and you know I bought all the party manifestos and uh, even read a bits of them uh, I followed the election coverage colouring maps I, on your wall I remember Punch magazine which still existed in those days releasing a board game um, that you could play whilst you were waiting for the election <laughs> night results to, to come in and I, I you know I played that with my family etc so you know I, I loved that election um, and the 97 election was great fun and, and uh, and then I was involved, actively involved in, in elections that followed. 
Um, so every election uh, in my lifetime, I've found something to find of uh, kind of interest, enjoyment, fun along the way. Of course, it's all serious, but uh, you know, I've actually got something. This one, I think, has been um, uh, stultifyingly annoying from start to finish, and I find no redeeming feature in it whatsoever. Does that answer your question? I I preferred it when. We were going for quick fire off. <laughs> I'm, I'm reversing it now. Um, and the other thing I suppose that's annoyed me about it, which has made me... Uh, so, so if that was your answer to your most enjoyable, dare well. I ask what your least enjoyable... So the least thing. enjoyable part has been the media coverage of, of this, and I guess the two are linked, um, in that, uh, you know, and I've not watched the news at 10, I'm not going to pretend I've followed it in that sense like a normal person, but what I have seen of the coverage, lots of it has been dominated by... Just this, this is a really important election, so we're going to spend the entire segment deciding how people are going to vote next time based on our amateur sophology, as opposed to talking about some of the real issues. And I guess the thing that's most frustrating is that you, you know the next 12 months are going to be seismic in British politics. We are going to have, you know, if the, unless it's a hung parliament or unless some other freak result happens, um, you know, if, the, if mm. the Conservatives do have a majority, however small or however large, um, the withdrawal agreement bill will almost certainly go through. Uh, that sends us straight back into the never-ending Brexit that you talked about mm. earlier. It certainly doesn't get Brexit done. And none of the big issues that are likely to dominate politics in the, in the last year feel like they've been even addressed on a surface level, let alone in any kind of in-depth way. And I know that that's a large part of that lies at the door of Conservatives for deliberately fighting a very subterranean campaign. They've adopted the same tactic that Boris Johnson did in his leadership campaign of just trying to avoid all controversy, keep everything as low-key as possible and hope that the kind of get Brexit done mantra sees them through and it may well do. But it does mean that lots of the fundamental issues uh, of, of Brexit, let alone all the other issues we face, I don't think have really been touched on in any way that uh, amounts to a serious examination. And um, that just kind of depresses me that you can go through six weeks of scrutiny and still really have no idea what a Boris Johnson government would look like um, uh, at all. Uh, and that, I think, is a, a sad reflection on, on democracy. I think it's a pretty sad reflection on the media as well. Is it the media's fault, do you think, though? Not entirely. Uh, like I said, I, mean, I think you know, the Conservatives have delivered... Mm. You know, the Andrew Neil interview mm. with Boris Johnson being a case in point of a, a Prime Minister evading mm. scrutiny, <coughs> serious scrutiny. Of course, he's doing the televised debate, so he's got a get-out clause, um, which means he's not getting quite the same pummeling that Theresa May got in the last election for not taking part in a leaders' debate. But, you know, that kind of um, deliberate evasion by going for the soft interviews uh, and so on, I think, uh, is, uh, you know, is a deliberate strategy. I guess it's the right one uh, from a tactical point of view for the Conservatives, uh, at least if the polling is right. But um, it's certainly not a win for democracy. I think the media, yeah, I think it does bear quite a lot of, um, of it. Not least, I suppose, the broadcast media, because it's, it seems to allow the newspapers, the vast majority of which are right-leaning, to set a lot of its agenda, and it's a point you've made before mm. about, say, the newspaper reviews. You know, there's mm. two half hours every night on Sky mm. News and BBC News dedicated to looking at what newspapers are saying, and that inevitably starts to set the tone for what they follow up on. So uh, I think there is more of a responsibility. I am being quite blanket and a bit lazy because I realise there are some news programmes trying to do a, a, you know, a, a good job of this, but it does feel like overall there's been a lack of... Um, serious engagement with Brexit, let alone the other issues of the election. Do you disagree with that? Do you think there has been good well, media coverage? I, no, not really. Because um, one, one thing I, I, I think I, as in, I agree with you, I don't think there has been great media coverage. Um, I, you know, I touched on the example um, with, I think it is Paul Brand, you know, asking the question about, you know, have you ever lied and then mm. having the obvious yeah. follow up. Um, but also things like, how long do free trade deals take to negotiate? Yeah. You know, just some of the basic, almost explainer type pieces that feel like they've been very, very thin on the ground. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there is a media outlet somewhere that has done a, you know, here is, you know, the big free trade deals over the last 20 years, how many years have they each taken to negotiate? Actually, given how long yeah. they take, you might have to go back more than 20 years to get a good sample. But, you know, I mean, I'm sure there are some good explainer pieces out like that out there, but they are very, very thin on yeah. the ground. Um, and likewise, I do think there is a problem that... that the decline, when there used to be daily press conferences, mm -hmm. there was an opportunity to put people on the spot, but also amongst the journalists who went to, you know, say the group who would go to the Tory one every day, 
they would get a bit of team spirit amongst them. And to an extent, while still rivals, working for rival news outlets, would also to a degree cooperate over repeatedly following up on particular topics and putting politicians yeah. on the spot. What you see now with, um, with that fragmentation of that press pack, because you don't have the daily press conference, is things like Boris Johnson deciding not to do the Andrew Neil interview. He doesn't then get hammered by a group of journalists from a dozen different media outlets at yeah. the next day's press conference, all of whom then write up that question or yeah. cover that question as part of their media report. And, and in that sense, you sort of think, I can understand why, say, on you know the sort of relatively soft interview, although to be in fairness to actually ITV's early morning programme, actually sometimes the quite soft questions from, say, Philip Schofield, mm -hmm. Um, are quite a good way of drawing out quite an interesting result. But you can see why they didn't yeah. decide to go full on, let's ask you seven questions about why you're not being interviewed by Andrew Neil, because that would have been a bit weird. But it does mean, because you don't have that daily press conference, and therefore individual journalists and individual ed production teams are making the decision to not really talk about how a politician is treating other journalists, it's a lot easier to evade that. And I think there are some questions about And the daily press conference as well allowed for a focus on a particular issue. So, you know, mm. there'll be NHS day, there'll yeah. be schools day, there'll be environment, mm. you know, and so uh, rather than it being driven by, you know, suddenly Labour's announced free broadband for everyone. And so you have a kind of everyone scrambling to work out what their view is on it. There was some serious interrogation in the press conference and then other parties would be able to respond and it would be kind of framed by this um, this sense of uh, discussion. I don't want to completely eulogise um, past elections because I'm sure they were frustrating mm. as well, but there did seem to be more of an attempt to try and get to the bottom of issues and there would be more of a serious examination as the election campaign went on of a range of different issues, whereas a lot of this election campaign seems to have been, as every election campaign <laughs> Uh, has been since 2016, kind of relitigating the referendum. Mm. And we seem to just be stuck in that loop. Yeah, although it may well be that part of the issue is that, it, the, in a way, the details don't matter so much. Now, if you have a clear view on A, Brexit, and B, Jeremy Corbyn, yeah. does any of the rest of that detail really matter that yeah. much? Um, it does, I, I, think, don't think I think it does yeah, both of you and I would probably argue that um, a bit that it should, but you can sort yeah. of see why the broad brush political choices in yeah. facing people at this election are ones in which the, are not that driven by the details. Yes. It's not about the detail of, is this plan for the NHS more credible than that plan for the NHS? You know, is the answer to have more centralised control or more decentralised structures in mm -hmm. the NHS? Yeah, that's not really part of, the, uh, part of it all. But of course, one thing that will completely reframe how we view all of this will be the actual result. Because if, let's oh, yeah, say, Boris Johnson yeah. ends up without an overall majority, an awful lot of the stuff that we've said will suddenly become, yep. well, wasn't he stupid for making such a big deal out of not yeah, turning yeah. up for Andrew Neil rather than making it a 30, 30 yeah, minutes over and done with story by having turned up. And, of course, the way listeners can make sure that Boris Johnson doesn't get an overall majority <laughs> is to go and help in their local target, Liberal Democrat target seat. We'll stick the link in the show notes for party members or otherwise, if you're a Liberal Democrat supporter and listening, you can go to the Lib Dem website uh, and get in touch with the party through that or look up the details of candidates and contact details as you wish on there. Or indeed, if you're not a Liberal Democrat supporter but tempted to vote tactically for us. Um, so, very final, quick fire round. Go on. One question for each of us. Simply want to know, which party are you voting for, Stephen? I will be voting for uh, the Liberal Democrats. And me too. Good. Two Liberal Democrat votes There's, from this podcast. That's, that's all we need. Joe Swinson, you're set for number 10.